This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, where each and every week we are two things. What are those two things? Relentlessly curious, steadfastly non-ideological. I want to get straight to our very special guest this week, John Bolton, the third national security advisor to President of the United States, Donald Trump. Mr. Ambassador, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. As you well know, Mr. Ambassador, the Associated Press has reported for a couple of days now. In March of 2019, it says, on your watch as national security advisor, you briefed President Trump on underlying intelligence that Russia through the GRU, had recruited or was attempting to recruit Taliban mercenaries to target American forces in Afghanistan. Is that true? Well, I'm I'm saying no comment on that. I did to the Associated Press because uh, uh, of the controversy uh, about whether uh, the, the government believes there's classified information in my book. I wrote the book, in my judgment, without any classified information. I went through four months of a pre-publication review process to make sure that was true. Uh, So I don't want to talk about the information uh, as such. Uh, I'll just say this, based on the reports, though, uh, in public, it seems to me this is a very serious proposition if it's true. And it's something that that I think the U.S. needs to respond to uh, in a very, very strong manner. Uh, you know, we could talk about the, the question, is the, is the quote-unquote intelligence verified or not? I think that's a significant point. I think the White House has been all over the lot on this, and that, that uh, fills me with concern as well. Is it all over the lot because that's the way this White House operates? Uh, it is exactly for that reason. My, my count as of uh, our speaking today is the president's had about three different stories on it. Uh, and his his advisors uh, have have even more. So it's growing more confusion. And I think this uh, open discussion about the intelligence uh, because of the stories, the demonstration of the confusion inside the White House uh, only gives our adversaries the, the stronger impression that the president simply doesn't pay attention to what he's being told uh, or to thinking systematically about how you respond to it. With your indulgence, Mr. Ambassador, I want to play you sound from this very morning of your successor, Robert O'Brien, National Security Advisor, calling this overall story a success in his words. Let's play that. The real story here, and that's that, that's what's, what's so sad, and we're in such a polarized time now, the real story is that we did everything right. When this raw intelligence came in, Gina Haspel put out a statement that, that I haven't seen re- reported. She said we distributed this raw intelligence, even though it wasn't verified, because we were concerned about it, we gave it to U.S. forces and we gave it to coalition forces to make sure they could have force protection. Here at the White House, when we had this raw intelligence, we started an interagency process to look at options so that if the, if the intelligence turned out to be verified, if it could be corroborated, then we'd have options to go to the president with to address the Russian situation. Evaluate that, Mr. Ambassador. Well, I guess the first thing I'd say is uh, uh, I won't be prosecuted if I can now talk about the intelligence is real since, uh, since Robert has spoken about it that way. Uh, I think one point that's important here is for people to understand is that intelligence doesn't come in only two forms. Over here you have your verified intelligence and over here you have your unverified intelligence. 
all intelligence comes along a spectrum. The intelligence agencies themselves talk about having low confidence, medium confidence, high confidence. Uh, It's a complex process, and uh, there's no point where it gets to be, uh, you know, just right, like in Goldilocks and the Three Bears, and then you run in and tell the president. So I think that's important, number one. This is a a process. It's a continuing process all the time. I'd have to say we have a uh, an unfortunate, uh, stark comparison here, uh, because this this morning I, I didn't hear that tape you just ran, but I did read Susan Rice's op-ed in the New York Times, and she writes, you know, if I if this were during the Obama administration and this what we now know to be raw intelligence had come to her, she she says she writes, I would have marched right into the Oval Office and shown it to President Obama. I have to say that's the right thing to do. Um, and so I'm, I'm probably going to get both Susan and myself in trouble for, for saying that uh, that I agree with her. But but honestly, this this is uh, you, you don't take everything into the president. But when American troops are threatened by an adversary like Russia in this way, uh, if, uh, if if there's any indication this is an ongoing operation, something the president needs to take into account. He'd be perfectly justified in saying, okay, I I want more information before I act on it. And it it has just become the intelligence community's number one priority. But to say, we don't give it to him until we're completely satisfied. That that didn't reflect how I operated. Uh, I don't think it reflected how H.R. McMaster operated. And uh, uh, I, I think this is something that, you know, people can take into account. To your point, Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor, has basically said out loud this intelligence was real and it went through a process, an interagency process. Can I ask you again if you were involved in that when you were the National Security Advisor about this subject? Well, I'd, I'd really still rather not get into that part of it. I don't, I don't want to make it look any more than uh, me against O'Brien than it is. Robert's been out there on the public record. He, he can defend himself. Uh, now you have to ask, uh, so, so what exactly are we going to do about this? Uh, if if we get some higher level of confidence in it. And, uh, you know, agencies within the intelligence community can have disagreements on, on things. Some people insist they only want the judgment of the entire intelligence community. I think that's like asking for a steady diet of pablum. Uh, I think competition among the intelligence agencies is a good thing. In some cases, you've got, as a policymaker, you've got to make a judgment. I think this is Uh, actionable intelligence, even if agency A and agency B don't agree. Right. And I guess the uh, one of the questions at the heart of this is, is this an interagency dispute over garbage or something really valuable? And I hear you saying it's potentially really valuable. And regardless of the disagreement, the president should have been notified about it immediately. Yes, I, I think that's right. Look, uh, uh, it is legitimate to debate the uh, the credibility of sources and methods. It, it's legitimate to uh, to debate the significance. It's legitimate to debate whether this is desinformatia, which the old Soviet Union and uh, was very good at, and so are the Russians today. It's a Russian word. Um, but but when you talk about American service members in Afghanistan being vulnerable. Uh, it takes on a special significance, especially for Donald Trump, whose prized Afghan peace plan is very much in jeopardy. Uh, so when he says, well, I, I didn't hear that, that's a way of saying it's not my responsibility uh, and it's not, it's not my peace plan that's really in jeopardy. There was a press report a day or two ago uh, that may be as accurate as many press reports in the newspaper that Zal Halilzad, the chief negotiator of the plan, uh, uh, was saying within the government debates that, that he thought we needed a very strong response to the Russians. Now, if that's true, and I underline the word if there as well, the fact that Zhao's saying that is significant because he's the one who went through the arduous process of negotiating the deal, and, and he sees it as something significant. Uh, look, we're going to have a lot of briefings of members of Congress. I, I'm sure more stuff is going to leak out. That's what happens when you talk to Congress. We'll know more shortly. Right. Mr. Ambassador, is it an ill-considered peace initiative? Look, I don't, uh, yes, I think the answer to that is yes. I think the president wanted cover to get American troops out of Afghanistan. Uh, I think ultimately that is a mistake. I understand we've been there a long time. I understand people are frustrated that the government of Afghanistan doesn't look like Switzerland. By the way, it never was. 
and the efforts to make it so, I think we're probably also doomed to failure. But I believe this very strongly. The counterterrorism uh, presence that we have there uh, is vital to protecting America. Uh, Joe Dunford, the former uh, chief of uh, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, used to call it insurance against another 9-11. I think that's a good analogy. And I think it's good to be there and see what's happening in Pakistan uh, and Iran, too. So, look, this is a uh, uh, something the president had politically invested in this peace plan. It's falling apart. I understand politically why he's upset about it, but politics should not drive national security, although, uh, unfortunately, it has far too much in the Trump administration. We'll pick that up on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett, our guest, national security advisor number three for President Trump, John Bolton, back in a second. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Working from home, as you can see, the home studio, as it has ever been, our guest, the third national security advisor to the President of the United States, Donald Trump, John Bolton. He has a book. You've probably heard about it, The Room Where It Happened. We'll get to some of that in just a second. A couple of other things on this matter, Mr. Ambassador. Do you believe there is an institutionalized reluctance to tell the president bad news in the intelligence realm or bad news about Russia? Well, I think there's reluctance because of the of the blowback that you can sometimes get. I, I got my share. Maybe I got a little bit more. From but, the president. Right. I think the bigger problem is the president's lack of interest in intelligence. And uh, I talk about that in the book a little bit. Uh, look, every president consumes intelligence in a different way. Ronald Reagan did one way, George H.W. Bush another. Uh, it, it The, the purpose of the, the briefing process is to meet the particular uh, needs uh, of the president and, and pre- present it to him in the way that best suits his, his desires. The problem with Donald Trump is, is not that he uh, is not receptive to one means or another. He's just not receptive to, to new facts. The intelligence briefings don't communicate as much information as they should. We tried to think of ways to change it. I think it was probably a doomed effort. Uh, but it's it's not that the intelligence community is failing. It's that the president does not value this information as highly as his predecessors have and as highly as he should. Is it an attention span issue or an ideological issue? Well, I don't think it's an attention span issue in the capacity sense. Uh, I think the the issue that grips the president's attention is his reelection. And I think on that subject, his attention span is infinite. Uh, I think he believes, and he said this uh, to, uh, to, to many people in this country and overseas, he, he can make deals on major issues uh, in, in a day's worth of negotiation. If he and Kim Jong-un could sit down on the North Korea program, if he and the Ayatollah Khamenei could sit down on Iran, they could wrap it up in a day. You know, the munchkins could work out the details. That's the way he does things. Big picture. Big guy talking to big guy. I think this is naive and foolish, frankly, uh, and potentially dangerous. Uh, but that that's his approach. And uh, uh, the, re- the result is where we are. No deal with North Korea and them advancing for three years on their programs. Uh, a lot of pressure on Iran because of his decision to get out of the Iran nuclear deal, but, but not enough to change their behavior. 
Uh, and, you know, I think hard work is required to be president. I think learning things you don't know about is required for president. No president comes in knowing everything, that's for sure. Uh, others that I've seen in action have worked to learn it. How often did you participate in the intelligence briefing process with President Trump? Pr- pretty much every day that I was there in, in the White House, d- days that I wasn't there, Charlie Kupperman or Mira Ricardell, my deputies, uh, would, would have sat in. Um, we talked usually in my office with uh, uh, the briefer and uh, the director of national intelligence, director of the CIA, before we went in about how to do it. I don't know if that, uh, that meeting still occurs, but uh, overall, I, I wish we had done a better job of persuading Trump. He needed to hear more information, not any particular kind, just more. He needed to know more, and uh, we, we never succeeded in that. You write in the book that he didn't read much, and oftentimes during the oral briefing, he would go off on his own tangents. That's not, my, that's not your word. It's my word, but I think it's fair enough based on what I've read. Yeah. Look, uh, uh, e- even Lyndon Johnson once said, you know, I don't learn much when I'm talking. And uh, <laughs> and he was a talker. Yeah. And so so is Donald Trump. So you can you can imagine how these quote unquote briefings would go. Interesting. Um, and it was said after nine eleven that there were things in the presidential daily brief that George W. Bush should have seen and should have reacted to more strongly. This is not a new problem for presidents. There is a tremendous amount of information to consume. So with that as a backdrop. Is there anything you have any degree of optimism about as how President Trump might do this better in the future? You know, I think it's uh, unlikely to the point of certainty that he's going to change. He's been doing it. He certainly did it this way during my 17 months. Uh, It was consistent with what I heard of how he had done it before and and how he's done it since. If he he is reelected in November, there's no basis in the evidence that I know to think that he'll change the approach. When Joe Biden said, as he did yesterday, that the president's reaction or lack thereof about this underlying intelligence was a dereliction of duty, do you agree? Well, I think you have to know a little bit more about what the the current level of intelligence is uh, and what the confidence levels are. And and you know, we're I'm an outsider now, just just like everybody else who's not uh, right there in the room where it happens. Um, But my point would be the allegation here is that a nuclear power is paying uh, terrorists for killing Americans. That alone should grab people's attention. And your information may not be entirely complete. You may not have the highest level of confidence in it, but you've got some sufficient evidence to cause the allies to be briefed for force protection purposes. That's what Robert O'Brien said. That, that, to me, says there's a level of seriousness here that justifies an American response. The first response may simply be a private word to uh, the Kremlin that uh, we're, we're on to this and it better stop. And, and that might be enough. I, I don't know. But it requires a response. And when the national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, your successor, says there wasn't enough here to bring to the president for a decision to be made on strategy or some interaction with Russia about that, is that a failure in itself? Because if I heard you correctly, you just said there should have been a response and there's a range of options, but to not bring it to the president for a range of options is a very bad thing, if I heard you correctly. I really, I don't want to personalize this. Uh, I work with- Understood, but as a matter of process, as a matter of functionality. Well, as I said earlier, uh, I'm, I'm uh, of the Susan Rice School in this instance. She said she would have walked in and shown it to Obama. I, I would have done the same. If I, I hope I would have done the same if I, if I had this kind of information. Deeper behind this, does the president, in your opinion, have a blind spot about Vladimir Putin or Russia? You know, I don't think it's uh, a blind spot limited to Uh, Putin and Russia. Uh, I think it applies to a range of other authoritarian leaders. Uh, The president himself has commented on this uh, peculiarity. He said, I point this out in the book, before he left for the NATO summit in 2018, followed by the summit with Theresa May, followed by the summit with Putin in Helsinki, he said to the press uh, on the way, you know, I think the easiest conversation will actually be with Vladimir Putin. Who would have thought it? And the answer is nobody would have thought it except him. Uh, he does. He does have. Uh, I think it's because he likes being a big guy with other big guys. That that's the best explanation I have for it. Um, 
uh, it's not a good explanation, but it's, uh, it's, it's certainly been remarked on not just by Donald Trump, but by plenty of other people. Some of the harshest critics of this sitting president of the United States have said he has authoritarian tendencies. Did you ever detect that? You know, uh, I'm, I'm reluctant to draw that kind of conclusion. Uh, I think he's got uh, a lot of worrying tendencies with, uh, with uh, as I described, uh, using uh, issues of governmental power to do personal favors for some of these authoritarian leaders. Uh, I don't want to overstrain this. And I think, honestly, it, the, the critics of Donald Trump do themselves a disservice when they try to put too much into a lack of sufficient information. There's plenty to criticize without overdoing it. You write in the book, it seems to me, with almost a tone of estrangement, like you believed there was something that he believed in when you went into the administration, or if not, that you thought you could work with him on or change. Is that fair? Well, I thought when I went in, I I certainly was not unaware of the criticisms and characterizations of Trump that many people had made, but I thought that uh, I thought I could make, make the relationship, make the process work. Uh, I describe in the book uh, meetings that I had with him where he talks obviously about having uh, watched on Fox News for nearly 10 years where I was a a commentator and uh, I don't think I was in all those years unclear about what my views were. So assuming he was listening to what I said, uh, uh, I had reason to think that, uh, that we could work together. Uh, and I, I am disappointed that uh, in that sense that it, that it didn't work out. That's the voice of John Bolton, our special guest, the third national security advisor to President Donald Trump. I'm Major Garrett. You're listening to and watching and thoroughly enjoying, as always, The Takeout. put this in perspective about how worried we should be. We're going to share the newest numbers and critical information on the outbreak. You've been talking to doctors. What are they saying to you about their experiences? From CBS Audio, this is The Takeout. And now, from the Sokolov Law Home Studio in Washington, here's Major Garrett. Welcome back. John Bolton, the third national security advisor to President Donald Trump, is our guest Mr. Ambassador, the administration, as you well know, makes a case that no one has been tougher on Russia than President Trump. True? Untrue? Well, certainly not true. I mean, this, this is a good case of forgetting history. Uh, you know, we went through a lengthy Cold War with, uh, with the Soviet Union, uh, uh, and any number of presidents, uh, I think, took a lot tougher measures. Uh, so, some, uh, some did not. But uh, even where the administration has done the right thing in imposing sanctions on Russia or what I think uh, really a lot of people can take credit for, major steps to increase uh, offensive cyber warfare capability, uh, changing procedures from the Obama administration that tied us in knots rather than allowing offensive operations, undertaken to show to Russia or others that they will pay a cost if they come against us in the electoral field or others, so that they know that uh, there's a deterrent capability in place, and hopefully what that does is reduce the number of attacks in cyberspace. But but all too often, I think the president was uh, kind of dragged along mumbling and, uh, and criticizing the decision uh, and using it later for political purposes, but uh, but having, having a lot of work needing to be done before he was prepared to authorize the decisions he now touts as being uh, his strong policy. Does he get dazzled by Putin? Uh, you know, uh, I think it's this big guy phenomenon. I mean, when you're an authoritarian, you can sit there and talk with great confidence about the decisions you're making because, because of your uh, dominance within the system. Uh, and I think I think uh, the president liked being a big guy, you know, doing big guy things. And, and then he had to come down later to being uh, merely a constitutional president of the most powerful country in the world. So he's not being dazzled. But I do think Putin and Xi Jinping, uh, I read them across the table, and I've, I've been across the table from Putin in many times in 20 years. I, I think they could see right through Donald Trump when one of them uh, was on the uh, the other side. It was not a fair fight. Interesting. Um, you write in the book that obstruction of justice was almost a way of life. What did you mean by that? Well, I talk in the book about the uh, experience with Hawk Bank, a Turkish bank uh, now being prosecuted uh, in the Southern District of New York, 
how the president treated uh, regulatory uh, civil enforcement against Huawei and ZTE, which are not commercial telecommunications companies, they're armed with the Chinese state, um, and kind of giving these things as personal favors uh, in exchange for nothing, really, just sort of how big guys do it. Um, you know, this is something that I think requires serious discussions. I don't expect we're going to have a particularly serious discussion during a presidential election. Uh, but if the president is reelected, I have no doubt that uh, that these issues will come up. And if he's if he's not reelected, we we have to have a, a national conversation about how this sort of thing can happen. Did your stomach churn when you saw the president attempt to replace the uh, U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York? Well, I wondered, uh, and I, I don't I don't have any direct knowledge because I've been out of the government, but I wondered what the reason for it was. I, I have to say relations with the Southern District of New York at Justice have historically been difficult. As an alumnus of Maine Justice in the Reagan administration, we used to call it the Sovereign District of New York. So uh, there are probably things there that, that I'm not familiar with. But what bothered me was what the president said to President Erdogan of Turkey. Uh, at one point in a meeting in Buenos Aires when he said basically, look, these these guys in New York are Obama guys. I'm going to get my guys in there and, and everything will be, be fine. When uh, I knew full well at the time, the prosecutors were career prosecutors. Uh, look, if, if uh, Hawk Bank uh, had done what it did in violating our Iran sanctions and then falsifying its financial records about it, they had been an American bank, we'd have toasted them. And they would have deserved to be toasted. So it wasn't a question about doing a, doing a, treating a foreign company unfairly. It was a question of letting a foreign company get away with a lot more than we would have let an American company get away with. What is your summary for the American public about the Ukraine aid tied to political investigations matter? Summarize it for the American public in a way that you didn't during the impeachment process. Well, I didn't because of the way the Democrats mishandled impeachment. I call it in the book impeachment malpractice. Happy to get into that in a minute. But but what was basically going on here uh, was that for his own personal political benefit, uh, the president was torquing around uh, a legitimate governmental interest of the United States, uh, legislation that provided for security assistance uh, for Ukraine, had the broadest possible bipartisan support. It had the support, I believe, of every senior administration advisor in the national security space. Uh, and the only one who was really opposed to it or had questions about it was Donald Trump. Uh, because he wanted investigations of uh, his 2016 opponent, Hillary Clinton, and his likely 2020 opponent, Joe Biden. Uh, I just thought that was illegitimate. Uh, our focus, because we were up against a September 30 fiscal year deadline, was to get the security assistance released. It turned out it was released the day after I resigned. Um, but this was the kind of thing being pursued through channels independent of the government, outside the government. Uh, something that really was very disturbing and which, you know, to this day, I still don't know the full details of. And when you said... It was Rudy Giuliani's drug deal. What did you mean? Well, uh, uh, I had been pulled into a number of conversations, and I, I recount this in, in the book, uh, with Rudy on the phone or uh, from the president telling me about his efforts in Ukraine. At one point, uh, uh, the president asked me to call President Zelensky and uh, arrange a meeting for Giuliani, which uh, fortunately turned out I didn't have to do for a variety of reasons. But uh, th this is, the, the president is free as president to pursue his own political uh, uh, prospects. He's, he is a politician. He has a First Amendment right to do it. What he doesn't have a First Amendment right to do is torque the government to his political benefit. Uh, and, and that's what I think we saw there. When you look at those who were your colleagues who did testify do you feel any remorse or regret that you did not join them? And do you think that their motives were any more pure than yours? No, I think their motives were pure. I would just point out they all received subpoenas from the House. I did not. But they also uh, informed the House that they would comply, and you did not. Well, what I said when, uh, when my deputy, Charlie Kupperman, got a subpoena, he also got a letter from the White House counsel 
ordering him not to testify. The others did not get such a letter. They got letters basically saying, don't cooperate. And what Charlie Kupperman did, what his sin was, faced with an order from the legislative branch, faced from a contradictory order from the executive branch, he asked the courts to resolve it. What did the House do? They withdrew the subpoena to moot the court case. And then they decided they were in a rush. They were in a rush to, to move ahead. Why? Because they didn't want to affect the Democratic presidential nomination process. Now, I, I understand their political motivation, uh, but that's torquing another governmental interest, the impeachment process, around a political interest for them as well. I which, think, is, which is worse? Well, I'm not sure which is worse, to be honest about it. I mean, I think that we, we know how to conduct a bipartisan impeachment inquiry in this country. It happened in Watergate. Sam Irvin, a Democrat, worked with Howard Baker, a Republican. They developed a record. You know, it turned out the first senator to call on Richard Nixon to resign uh, was Jim Buckley, not even a Republican, the conservative party senator from New York. That, that's why Nixon had to leave, because the Republicans said, we can't defend him anymore. The Democrats in the, in the Trump case pushed the Republicans in the House away. They made it a partisan process. I think whatever I would have said would have been lost in the shuffle. I don't think it would have had an effect. And you have no regrets for not doing that? Look, I, I have regrets about uh, the whole way the process turned out. I have a regret, a big regret, that the White House argument which conceded the quid pro quo, conceded the, the, uh, the, the famous phrase about what Trump did and said, even if it were all true, uh, it did not represent conduct that rose to the level of an impeachable offense, which was an argument, I think it's fair to say, a majority, maybe nearly all of the Republicans in the Senate accepted. Do you accept it? Uh, no, I don't. If, if uh, I've said, if, if I were in the Senate, I think I probably would have voted in favor of uh, impeachment on the article about Ukraine. I'm Major Garrett. That's John Bolton. Stay tuned for segment four in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to segment four, kind of a truncated show this week. Uh, former National Security Advisor to President Donald Trump, the third in a line of four, his name John Bolton, the author of the book, The Room Where It Happened, gave us 30 minutes, and 30 minutes we respected, as did he. So there's a little bit of extra time on our hands, and because this Russia bounty U.S. forces in Afghanistan story has taken on such enormous presence in our conversation, both political and policy. We wanted to bring in bring in one of our dear friends at CBS, a contributor, uh, the host of the CBS audio podcast, Intelligence Matters, and former uh, acting director of the CIA and deputy director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Do I have all those titles right, Michael? <laughs> I think so. I think so. Okay, good. So hard, it's hard to keep track of. <laughs> it is. You know? It is. Uh, great to be with you. Great, great to have you with us. So, um, John Bolton is uncomfortable saying whether or not he briefed the president in uh, 2019, March, even though the Associated Press has for two days now said that's what happened. He said because he doesn't want to get into any more difficulties with his administration over classified information. Does it matter whether he or anyone else briefed the president directly on this matter before this week? Absolutely. Um, this is, you know, if true... Um, if the Russians are indeed offering bounties to Taliban-associated militants, that is a very significant national security issue. And the president needed to know about it um, as soon as possible, um, you know, not months later. So I think it's a, it's a very important issue with regard to when did the president know um, and what was he told. So... When Robert O'Brien, the fourth national security advisor to the president, says, as he did this very day, well, uh, there were uh, this raw intelligence was given to our allies for force protection, given to our troops for force protection, but there was nothing to take to the president in terms of a strategic decision. Does that sound like the proper process to you? No, not at all. Um, obviously, there's a force protection issue, right? Obviously, this information goes to our military and all the other militaries that are fighting in the coalition so that they can better protect themselves. But there is also a strategic issue here. And the strategic issue is the foreign policy 
of Russia and the foreign policy of Vladimir Putin. Um, this crosses, in my mind, Major, a significant red line, right? Providing um, support to the Taliban is one thing to make our life a little bit more difficult in Afghanistan, you know, weapons and some money, but actually paying bounties for the killing of Americans, I think, crosses a red line that becomes a strategic issue that needs to be taken up with Russia. At the highest level. At the highest levels. And there are a range of options there. There could be, as John Bolton said, hey, we know about it. You better knock it off or this is going to get ugly to something else. More sanctions, uh, other options. Yeah, so I'd say, right, um, there needs to be a National Security Council process where you look at all of the policy options and you take, you know, the ones that you think best to the president for him to approve. You know, if if I were involved in a discussion like this, I think the things that would be on the table would be um, a presidential phone call to Putin, for sure. Um, I would think there would be, um, there would be a significant attempt to capture the Russian intelligence officers who might be in Afghanistan talking to these militants, right? Let's, let's capture them and let's make a public issue out of this. Um, let's get as much public information out about this as possible, right? With sources and methods in mind, of course, but let's get as much public information out about it as possible to embarrass Russia. Um, I think you, you do all of that and then if they don't stop, then you go the sanctions route. Um, but you absolutely have to take this on because it is the lives of American soldiers that are at risk here. And when the public hears, as it is heard from our reporting and others, that there was a dispute over the quality of this intelligence between the CIA and the National Security Agency, is that a common? Is that um, the kind of thing that would necessarily keep it away from the president's attention? And what kind of dispute would ordinarily occur between those two agencies? So, so great question, but let me, let me step, step back one second, because if I, were, if I were the director of the agency or the director of national intelligence or the national security advisor, I would have told the president about this. If I was the president's briefer, I would have told the president about this when the information first came in, even before the analysis was done. I would have said, Mr. President, you need to know that we have a stream of intelligence that says or suggests that the Russians are offering bounties. We haven't assessed this information yet. We're going to do that. We will get back to you as soon as possible, or we will get back to you in a week or two weeks, right? I would have done that, given the significance of this information. So even before the analysis was done, I would have told him about it. Then the analysis gets done. And the fact that there were differences of opinion in the intelligence community about either the judgment itself about whether it's happening or more likely the level of confidence in that judgment um, is not something that leads one to keep that judgment away from a president. You go ahead and tell him, but you tell him about the dissent. Um, you say, Mr. President, these three agencies believe that the Russians are doing this. This one agency disagrees. This one agency doesn't think there's enough information to come to that judgment. That, that is what you do. You take the dissent to the president. Um, you don't say you got to resolve the dissent before we take it to him. You let him know there is a dissent. And dissents are common. Dissents are very common in the PDB. Um, and I think that, that, that yeah, it, 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 it's common, it's normal, um, and it is not a reason. It is not a reason not to give the information to the president, and it is not a reason not to, sh not to share with him. And uh, for those listening, PDB, Presidential Daily Brief, I asked John Bolton if he thinks it was not conveyed to the president because there's a structural reluctance to tell him bad news, either about intelligence or Russia. He offered his own opinion on that. Do you have an opinion on that or a speculative judgment? So I think it's, it's, it's less likely. I want to make two points here. One is... Um, um, uh, the National Security Advisor uh, this morning or last night, I don't know exactly when, actually blamed this on the president's briefer, said the briefer made a decision not to share it. Um, uh, you know, what I think is more likely here is that the briefer started to brief it 
and the president cut her off because the president does, doesn't want to hear any bad news about Russia. So I don't believe that, that, that she didn't try to raise it. I believe that she tried to raise it and he cut her off because he doesn't want to hear any bad news about Russia. That's what I think happened. Now, the other point I want to make about, about O'Brien, the national security advisor, blaming the briefer here is the briefer is the most junior person in the room, right? There's a lot of other senior people in the room, the national security advisor, the DNI, possibly the director of the agency, um, possibly the vice president. There's a lot of other people in the room who know this information. And if she chose for some reason, if the briefer chose not to brief it, or if she tried to raise it and the president brushed her away, it's, one, it's the responsibility of one of those more senior people to say, Mr. President, stop. You need to know this. Right? So don't blame her. And when the president tweets, as he has frequently, and again this very day, hoax, that's just got to leave everyone confused and befuddled about what this is or isn't. Yeah, so it's absolute. It's clear to me it's not a hoax, right? Because, <laughs> because we are, you know, the defense secretary put out a tweet today saying all information about force protection is taken seriously. Exactly, it is right, and it was that shit. wasn't an accident. That's not so, a coincidence that he tweeted about this story that way. So, so we know two things, right? It was shared with our allies. That tells you how seriously we took it. Number one. Number two. We now know from the National Security Advisor saying that the briefer chose not to raise it, we now know it was in the PDB, right? Because that's what she is choosing from when she makes a decision what to brief and what not to brief. So we now know that the intelligence community thought enough of this to put it in the PDB, right? So this is not a hoax, right? Somebody believes that this is significant information and that the Russians are indeed doing this. And quickly, what does it take to get into the PDB? There's a process for it to even get there in the first place, is there not? Sure. There's a, there's a long, and the analysts will tell you, painful process, right? So they propose a piece. Um, the piece gets approved. They draft it. Their management team looks at it. It gets coordinated across CIA. It then gets coordinated across the rest of the intelligence community. That's how you know whether people dissent or not. Um, it gets signed off on by the highest levels in the DNI, I think one level down from the DNI. So it goes through a very long process, right? And everybody along the way is asking questions and challenging. And, um, you know, so you know that what ends up in there has gone through a very rigorous process. For our radio audience, which includes, we are happy to say, Sirius XM, POTUS 124. That concludes this episode of The Takeout with John Bolton and Mike Morell. For those of you on CBSN, the podcast platform, stay with us for The Takeout Outtake, Especial. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. Ambassador Bolton, with your indulgence, I have three questions that I ask every single guest on this show, and it is the fun and games part of it. So, in the order you choose, most influential book in your life, your all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies, and if you are musically inclined and are indulging yourself, what kind of music, artist, or genre do you listen to? Well, um... Uh, I listen to classical music, uh, not that I pretend to have any great knowledge of it, but, uh, but that's, that's, uh, that's my favorite music to relax to, that's for sure. I suppose my, uh, the, the most uh, important book is very, very hard one, but uh, if, if I had to say, it would be Reflections on the Revolution in France by Edmund Burke. And my favorite movie, uh, that one's actually fairly easy. It's uh, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon uh, starring John Wayne. Very good. Mr. Ambassador, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you uh, living up to your commitment. Thank you for joining us, and uh, we will see you down the road. Okay. Many thanks, Major. We had two guests for the main show, two guests for the Especial, and the second is the same as it was for the show, Michael Morell, uh, who, in addition to being the host of CBS Audio's Intelligence Matters podcast, outstanding every single week, there is a component of that they have just developed called Declassified, Spy Stories from the officers who were there. Michael, what's that all about? 
So this is a, a special, special thing we're doing, Major, where we are asking former intelligence officers to tell the most interesting stories from their careers. Um, and we've, we've published two of them. We've disseminated two of them already. Um, they've been big hits. Um, they are riveting. It is like a spy novel where you want to turn the next page and not stop until you get to the end of the book. And uh, is there a necessary time lag uh, for these stories? Uh, and is there a classification process they have to go through? Or is there anything that you have to be careful around about some of the details or places or people? Sure. So um, I, I let the officers know, um, you know, what part of the story we want to cover. And um, it's up to them to get their notes cleared ahead of time with, with CIA. And I'm sure they're, all, they're doing that. I have not heard, I have not heard anybody cl- come close to saying anything classified. Mm-hmm. And uh, like a spy novel, only real. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the ones, one of the ones that we just dropped was a young analyst who was um, in our office, in our station in Tripoli, um, when the U.S. decided to evacuate all Americans from Tripoli. And she tells that harrowing story, um, rockets falling, um, long drives to the border, um, you know, the weapons that she, that she needed to carry with her. I mean, it is an absolutely fascinating uh, story about um, a real event. And you were deputy director of the CIA and for a time acting director. So you were at the top of that pyramid in these stories and they're retelling. Do you learn things you didn't know? I do. I do. And I learned things about the the officers um, and how they were feeling, right, um, at the time. Um, So one of the things that this young analyst said to us on the podcast was, you know, when she got across that border um, into from Libya into um, Tunisia, you know, she had a feeling of relief because she was safe, but she also had a feeling that we had abandoned, we had abandoned Libya and left Libya to civil war. And she felt horrible about that, right? That's the kind of stuff you never know when you're sitting mm-hmm. at the top. Right. And in the nomenclature of uh, either state or Pentagon or CIA bureaucracy, would there ever be the phrase, well, that person maybe have gone native or gone local or something like that, being overly sympathized with the people that she was working around and not for the United States? Sure. Um, but I think she was saying in this case that, that you know, the, that President Obama had made a commitment um, in, the, in the aftermath of Gaddafi to put together a government, right, that was representative of the Libyan people. And at the end of the day, we failed at that, right? And I think what she was saying was um, she felt horrible that we had to, you know, that we gave that up, that we gave that effort up as a government, right? Right. That's what she was saying. And as anyone in your world knows, failed states can be a problem. Right. Breeding ground for terrorists, right? Right. Back to where we are with this story uh, and the John Bolton book broadly and without getting into specifics, there's a court case now in which a federal judge says it appears that John Bolton may have written in this book classified information, something that he is prohibited by law from doing. Based on your reading, do you think that is a fair interpretation? So um, I'd make two points. One is, um, one is I, I saw things in the book. Um, about our adversaries um, that I had not seen before in the public domain. And it made me wonder, where did this come from? I have no idea whether those pieces that I saw, which I can't go tell you right. about, of course, of course. <laughs> but, but, um, if, whether those pieces I saw were classified or not. The second thing I would say is that the director of NSA did tell a court that there was classified information in the book. Under oath. Under oath. So, you know, so I think, you know, I, I do think um, there may be classified information in the book, um, but I do think too major that the government's going to have a real problem here in, um, in, in taking John to court um, or taking away his, his profits from the book because he was told at one point by a working level NSC official that your book is done. Your book yes. is cleared, right? Mm-hmm. And we and we know that um, that the National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien asked that the book be looked at again a second time. So 
the government's not in a great place, right, to go before a judge. And the judge is going to ask, how come it was unclassified the first time you told him it was done? And all of a sudden it became classified again. So that's going to be a very, very tough question for the government to answer. And I can tell you from personal experience where I had to make the decision at CIA whether to take people to court or not. Um, if you're in that place, if you told somebody at one point that your book is done, then you're in a very weak position legally. That's the voice of Michael Morell. Uh, I've gone through the roster of things he does for CBS and he did for the federal government. It's great to have you. Always a pleasure, Michael. Be well. Always good to see you, Major. And that's it for this episode of the Takeout Outtake Especial. We'll see you next week, everybody. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to Takeout. If you like the Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Podcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio.